0: Hey, welcome to the Hive with Us podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Martinez. Today we have co host Anthony Gaona and a special guest, Mr. John S. Pennington Jr.
1: Hello, everyone. Are you a best selling author? Did you hit no, 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 am not selling author. I, I'm an author now though. He's I got wrong. my first, my, my first business book just, just hit the uh, Amazon and audible.com just a few weeks ago. So,
0: so let, let's start with the book because I have my copy here, which is dollars, gold, and Bitcoin. Nice. Uh, and oh, and, and it's signed. Look at that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I signed it for you at our <laughs> event that I saw you a few weeks ago. We were there and I signed it for you. Yeah
0: no I pre- appreciate you I think we're we're gonna we're gonna have fun today I'm really excited about the conversation today um, I heard you speak in Utah and it was just interesting about like stocks manipulation your experience um, can you give like a thirty second elevator pitch on your experience and what just kind of people know who you are if they never met you before
1: yeah yeah sure um, uh, John s Pennington jr I'm a entrepreneur from Granada College and uh, mainly in funds. I mainly speak on the fund market because I have a lot of experience in uh, investment funds, hedge funds, uh, real estate funds. Um, as you, as some of you might know, syndication is where you are going to do a real estate deal and you bring in like five or six investors and they wire all their money into a, you know, a title company and you do a loan on a, on a, or a buy a, buy a piece of property, a fund is the investors have already wired their money into a one account that I control as a general partner. And the fund goes out and purchases that property or lends on that property or does something with that, uh, that capital and funds are, you know, the black Stones of the world, the black rocks of the world, uh, KKR's those are the funds of the wor- of the world are controlling the world these days. They're buying up everything. They're buying up single family homes. They're buying up uh, apartments. They're buying up pretty much anything you can get your hands on. A fund is out there trying to uh, corner that market. So that's uh, that's kind of what I you know my specialty is on that. So let, let's just get into it. The, let's start with the conspiracy theory, okay? It's yeah, a really, good, it's a really good one, and I think you guys are going to like it. So. Let me just tell you where the book, the impetus of the book, dollars, gold, and Bitcoin came from. So I'm, I have an economics degree years ago, I graduated from college, and I've always just followed economics. And so in December, 2018, now get this, the Federal Reserve says, hey, the economy is doing really, really well. Next year in 2019, we're going to raise interest rates three times until 19. Great. That's December. Less than forty-five days later, in in the early part of December, uh, January, 2019, they said, "Oops, we're sorry, we're not going to raise interest rates three times in 2019. We're going to lower interest rates three times in 2019." And I said, "You know, my my economics brain went into overdrive. Like, what just happened? <laughs> Something big just happened, but I didn't know what it was. So I kept my antennas up, right?" And so uh, two months later in March, I read this report that said that over $3 trillion in Europe, $3 trillion of sovereign bonds, like you know German bonds and Spanish bonds, are being traded at zero or negative interest rates. And I was like, I have an economics degree. I've never read a book. I've never read a paragraph. I don't even know what interest, negative interest rate is. But think about this, um, you guys. A negative interest rate is if you purchase this bond, this German bond at a negative interest rate, you are mathematically guaranteed to lose money. Why would that even exist? I don't know. I don't know, but that was March of 2019. So three months later, I I got my antennas up just trying to figure out what's going on in Europe. And three months later, June, July, it's $13 trillion of negative interest bonds being traded. You know, And I'm just I I just don't get it. I just don't get it. I'm just I just flabbergasted. But then I thought about it. Wait a minute. The number one job of the Federal Reserve is to protect and promote the US dollar. Sure. I know they have a job to keep unemployment low and GDP. high. I I get all that. I get all that. Right. And inflation down. I, I get that. Right. But Underlying everything, the the government's job, if they keep the num- if they keep the the dollar being uh, accepted all over the world, and they create insatiable demand for the U.S. dollar, their number one job is to protect and promote the U.S. dollar. So, there's a few ways that they do that. One, they tax everybody in U.S. dollars. So I, I can't pay my taxes in b- Bitcoin or chickens. I got to pay in U.S. dollars. So that creates insatiable demand. The other way that we'll talk about in a minute is most, uh, they, insi- they insist with using the U.S. Navy. They insist that all countries trade crude oil in U.S. dollars. That creates insatiable demand. They also use the SWIFT system, the bank-to-bank wire transfer called the SWIFT system. Yep. That is a U.S. dollar-based system. And another way they would do it is they would, the, you know, to c- compete against Europe, if you're going to borrow money in the world at, you know, Europe with negative or low interest, negative interest rates or zero interest rates, the Federal Reserve lowered their interest rates down to almost zero. Basically, they're saying if you're going to borrow money, borrow from U.S., borrow from U.S. dollar. It's almost zero and it's, it's the world reserve currency. So for the next 30, if you take a loan for the next 30 years, you have to get U.S. dollars to pay those loans back. You can't get chickens or Bitcoin. You have to pay U.S. dollars. So those four things are, are ways that the, the government creates insatiable de- demand for U.S. dollars. And this started me on the, uh, the hypothesis of the book, Dollars, Gold, and Bitcoin, of like what is going on? The Federal Reserve has a secret war. You, know, you have war, World War I, World War II, but I think World War Three has kind of already started, but it's not a war of guns. It's a war of currency domination. And i uh, give you some history. In 1933, this is three or four years after the Great Depression, the great crash, you know, the stock market crash. I don't know if you know this, but your grandfather, my grandfather, could not own gold in the United States of America. It was outlawed. You could have a gold watch, sure, gold watch, no problem, you know, a gold ring, no big deal. But if your grandfather, my grandfather, was caught with five gold coins in his pocket, he could go to jail. Did you guys know this?
2: Whoa, no, never yeah, heard that. This is the United
1: States of America, right? <laughs> and what they did was, it was patriotic. What they did was in May 1933, the president of the United States had an executive order. If you own a gold bar, gold coins, you must sell those items to the U.S. government for like it $35 an ounce or something like that, right, right around there. And they're going to take the gold and put it in Fort Knox. And then they're going to sure up the U.S. dollar by gold, with gold. Mm-hmm. And therefore we would get that would get us out of the great depression because worldwide we have a weak, weak currency, we're in a recession, depression, and we've got a guard. so it was patriotic. So if you knew all your friends, you, you would encourage all your friends to sell that gold to the us to start, it was patriotic to help the country out. So world war two came along and we got in the war late. And so what we're doing is we're selling our grain, our tanks, our bullets. We're selling them overseas to all these countries. And they're sending us gold for that because we came in the war really, really late, but we are accumulating all this gold for selling. So by 1944, the war is almost over. It's almost done. And we pretty much know we're going to win. Why? It was just mathematics. It was like the United States was producing like 50,000 planes a year. That's a thousand planes a week was coming off our assembly lines. Germany's making, you know, two to 5,000 planes. It's just math. We're making like 20,000 tanks. They're making like 500 tanks. It was just, it was just <laughs> mathematics, mathematics at that point of time. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's 1944, and there's a place in New Hampshire called Bretton Woods. And they invited over 1,000 people to come to Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, from all the countries all over the world, and they were going to reset the currency. And what happened was at Bretton Woods, it, it became known as the Bretton Woods Agreement, and they said, basically, at this point, and this is, this I'm about to tell you, it's crazy, okay? Listen to what I'm about to tell you. At that point, 1944, okay, the United States had 66% of all the gold bullion in the world. <laughs> Whoa. Can you believe this? Okay. So it's, it's crazy, right? And so they said, listen, the, the U.S. dollar is going to be backed by gold. But the French franc is not going to be backed by gold anymore. It's going to be backed by the US dollar, which is backed by gold. So it ha- there was, there, that, that's kind of how it went. Now, another thing that came out of the Bretton Woods Agreement, and it, it didn't say this really, but basically, if you wanted to trade crude oil around the world, you would probably need to get US dollars to make trades because that's the common denominator across the countries. And so as it went on years after year after year, basically after World War II, everyone's Navy is obliterated. Russia's Navy's gone. China's Navy's gone. Japan's gone. Italy's... Everyone's Navy except a little bit of Britain. And the U.S. basically had their Navy intact. And a Navy is one of the most expensive things for a country to you know, have. Okay. And so they basically said... And this, like I said, it wasn't written in the agreement. It's basically this. Listen, if you trade oil in U.S. dollars, you don't need a Navy. The U.S. Navy will protect your shipping lanes. So a little country somewhere that has some goods and services they want to sell across the world, if they trade in U.S. dollars for oil, well, if there's any pirates, the U.S. Navy would just come by and smash those pirates. And that was kind of the agreement. And then in 1971, so the gold competition, they call it 1930 to 1971, you couldn't own gold. But in 1971, President De Gaulle of France, he sent his two ships over to one of our ports on the Atlantic coast to pick up gold because he knew we had abused the system. We kept printing more and more U.S. dollars than we had gold, mm. and so if you, my grandfather, could not turn his hundred-dollar bill in for gold, but if if someone lived in France, a, fr- a French citizen, they could turn their hundred-dollar bill bill in and they could get gold for it but a us citizen could not but yeah. in 1971 president de gaulle sends his uh two two big ships over to our one of our ports and says we've brought all, our, all of our us dollars here they are we want our gold back and so this is um it's hilarious it's um sunday night august 15th 1971 president nixon gets on the on the tv and he says basically The market manipulators around the world are trying to manipulate the U.S. dollar. And he says, for temporarily, we're going to suspend all gold bullion backing the U.S. dollar. And that was it. He just said it. And the next morning, the markets opened, and you couldn't exchange your dollar. No one in the world can exchange their dollars for gold. And President de Gaulle had to send his ships back to France with no gold. That's what happened. And so, and so right after that, the, uh, Saudi Arabia made an agreement right about the same time with the US, U.S. that they would sell no oil without U.S. dollars. And that's when it became the petrodollar. So the evolution of the U.S. dollar kind of goes, you know, goes to a system, of gold, and then the petrodollar. And today, the, the United States Navy, the SEC, the, the IRS, the, the President of the United States and the Federal Reserve, their number one job is to protect and promote the U.S. dollar. And so that's where the impetus of this book came from, the history of that. But the craziest thing happened, I'm going to get my, my years right, right, 2020, summer 2020. Okay, get this. I'm, I'm an economics guy, and I'm, I'm still studying this whole negative interest rates in Europe thing. I'm studying over and over. I'm trying to really focus in on that. And what happens is JP Morgan, one of the largest investment banks in the world, is sued by the SEC, and they lose. And JP Morgan has to pay a fine. Now, get this $930 million fine to the SEC. What did they do? They were convicted of manipulating the precious metals markets for nine years. So my economic brain goes, wait a minute. Someone can manipulate the worldwide precious metals markets and they did it so good that the SEC fined them almost a billion-dollar fine. But guess what? No one went to jail, as far as I know. No one to jail. And so what I think happened was the SEC, the Federal Reserve, everyone at that point realized something was happening with Bitcoin and that Bitcoin could become a competitor to the U.S. dollar. So since the SEC figured out in the summer of 2020 how you can manipulate a market way larger than Bitcoin, They took a one year to July of 2021 to figure out how to manipulate it. And they learned what they learned, they they learned it all from JP Morgan. And so in the summer of 2021, Bitcoin was about $30,000, somewhere around there. But get this July, August, September, October, November, it goes from 31,000 to 69,000. It's all time high. Mm -hmm. And now, what I'm about to say is, is theory, but this is basically, I believe, one of the ways you control. A market. If you need forty-five days of trading volume, so if Coca-Cola stock trades a hundred shares a day, and you had forty-five hundred shares, you would have forty-five days of trading volume. If it trades a thousand shares a day, you need forty-five thousand shares. So if Bitcoin trades a thousand coins a day, you would need forty-five thousand bitcoins. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. To- to control. it. You might need 60,000 60 days of trading volume, but whatever, that's the theory. So this is what this is what I believe happened. To control it, they start the Federal Reserve's operatives, a clandestine, this is my conspiracy theory, started purchasing Bitcoin in July. And they had to buy 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 and by the time you know, November comes around, they've got enough Bitcoin to start, you know, trying to control it. And these four things that I'm about to tell you all happen in November, okay? November 2021. Number one, Bitcoin hits an all-time high six nine thousand dollars. Number two, Hillary Clinton says, through a microphone, now Bitcoin could dethrone, and I'm not, I'm not quoting her perfectly. Bitcoin could dethrone the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency, or could threaten the U.S. dollar. All right. Number two, the SEC. Extends their lawsuit against Ripple XRP. Mm-hmm. Now, XRP, the coin ripple has one purpose. It has to speed up worldwide transfers of bank bank bank-to-bank transfers. Yep. It goes around the Swift system. Now remember, the Swift system is a dollar-based system, but if you go around the SWIFT system, you don't need US dollars. So the SEC extends their lawsuit against Ripple for really no apparent reason, all right? Now, back to, back to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, y- y- I love to talk to people or listen to people who just love to get in the microphone and just spew things. Now, you could, you could think it two ways. Now, this is what my book kind of projects on the reader. I stopped living my life by predicting the future years ago. I started just running probabilities. And probabilities, I run a probability. What's the probability of X happening? What's the probability of Y happening? So here, let me ask you a question. Hillary Clinton says this in the exact month that it goes you know, to the high. She says it's going to, it could, it could threaten the US dollar. What's the probability that she just said that off the cuff just as a funny thing or just had a, a random thought or what's the probability she was privy to earlier meetings earlier that month that she had heard what was gonna happen to Bitcoin through the Federal Reserve's clandestine plan. And to tell her memes, the people who follow her, to show them that she's really smart and she's she says, Oh, by the way, the US dollar could be threatened by Bitcoin. There's the probabilities there, right? Mm-hmm. Now the fourth thing that's most intriguing is in November 2021, the SEC had two applications for ETFs for Bitcoin. They had an ETF that wanted to sell spot price in Bitcoin the actual Bitcoin and they had an ETF that wanted to just sell the futures. And a lot of times in life to know what's going on, you, you find out what people don't do that tells you more than what they do do. The sec approves an ETF that can use futures to buy and sell Bitcoin hypothecate. Mm-hmm. And they denied an ETF that wanted to spe- sell at the spot price because JP Morgan in their lawsuit had used the futures market of the precious metals market to sell paper and options and paper and options. They sold way more or tried to sell way more options than actually existed in gold or silver. And so that way you can hypothecate and that's one way you can control the market. So those four things all happened in November, 2021 and therefore, that's where my thesis of my book came of dollars, gold, and Bitcoin, to show that the Federal Reserve is going to do anything they possibly can to control Bitcoin. Now, we both know, all of us know on this on this call, that a, a month or so ago, the, the SEC finally approved 11, 11 ETFs that can buy and sell spot price Bitcoin. And there are two interesting things I want to tell you. And I haven't read all the applications, but the SEC said they were delaying. For two or three years, we can't have a spot price, can't have a spot price. we're working with the applicants to change and modify their applications. I don't know what that, that means. When the SEC says we want Blackstone to change their application. I don't know what that means. But hmm. when the application was approved, there's one paragraph in there that says this. And this is crazy. It says that Blackstone, when they run their Bitcoin ETF, they can basically write more contracts than actually exist of their Bitcoin in their spot price. That means they can hypothecate it. Why would you put that in your Bitcoin ETF spot ETF? That doesn't make any sense. And the second thing, which is very strange to me, is there's a line in there that says, and I don't, I don't know why Blackstone would write this in, but it basically says this, and I'm paraphrasing again. It says, if Bitcoin ever forked, Blackstone doesn't know which fork they would take. And I don't know why you would even write that into a, into a, I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. So I've talked a little bit. So, it, so we'll stop there for a minute and and we'll go questions or comments. What do you guys want to talk about? So, so tell me what. tell me if I'm loony or tell me you got questions. Tell me where I'm going.
0: I, I, I like the, uh, I like the whole conversation of, I, I think it's funny because a lot of people are like, Oh, the, they the United States removed the backing of gold back in the seventies but now they're backed by the military. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The, the, mil- the military is going to align everybody to their will,
1: whether people like it or not. Yeah. And I think that's the, there's one, see, there's one, the Bitcoin is a great, I love Bitcoin. I think it's a great idea, but they, they, Bitcoin does not have a Navy. Bitcoin oh, yeah. does not have an army. No, it doesn't. Bitcoin does not have a, 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 a strong arm that makes people take it. Right. Nope. The U S does. And I, I know people are, you know, you know, saying the US dollars, the de-dollarization in the world. But I think it's 1960, the US dollar was 45% of all U- world reserve currency. In 2001, it was 70, I think 73% of all US cur- world reserve currency. And now 2024, it's 58%. So of all world reserve currency, 58% is US dollar. Now, number two is the euro. And the euro is 20%. And people say, well, no, what about the Chinese yuan? Look, it's only 2.7%. The chi- look, China has mm. had the fastest growing economy of any economy ever on humankind for 25 years, 30 years. And they went from world reserve currency from 0.02 to now they're 2.7 of the total world reserve currency. So you know, when people say the yuan is going to take over, I'm like, man, if they have the same growth for the next 30 years, are they going to be seven percent? I, I, I just don't see the math on how they're arguing that the yuan is going to take over over that over that money. So anyway, it's it's out there, but um, I, it's it's the U.S. dollar is so far ahead. I realize it's coming down, but it's 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 way up there, and it's going to be hard to knock that knock that off the top. So.
2: Man, I love these conversations. I feel like I, we could, I feel like I could talk about this for ten hours straight. So, what do you think's going on? Is it, is it the like the Federal Reserve teaming up with other entities like like these Black Rocks and stuff to just go ahead and, and start growing wealth that doesn't exist again, kind of the same way Chase did with gold?
1: Yeah. So I'm sitting there, and my mind is going, "Wait a minute." You know, they waited, 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 and they 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 struck a deal with I think J.P. Morgan. Hey, you're going to help us promote and protect the U.S. dollar by Protecting all competitors and if you don't you're going to have the wrath of the you know uh, Of the united states government. Okay, let's go back to uh, november 2022 okay, that's just a year just not time a little over a year ago, okay so <laughs> There's a news report wells fargo Citigroup and the Fed, new york federal reserve is going to test their digital dollar. This is in november
2: Okay
1: mm-hmm. so four or five months later this is march 2023 three banks are closed silvergate silicon valley bank and signature bank okay yep. all three of those are crypto banks it's not like they close like some random banks in november they say we're going to test our digital dollar and four months later we're closing the top three crypto banks in the country They're making room for their product. They're reinventing the U.S. dollar into the digital dollar. And then, uh, you know, that month they had another lawsuit against Bittrex. They had another lawsuit against another crypto fund. I mean, I don't think – it's not coincidence, right? And so you're protecting their number one product because, listen, the U.S. dollar – people say – well, let me put it this way. Americans love pancakes. They love, love, love pancakes. (laughs) I go Saturday morning down there at Pancake House. It's a 30-minute wait to get pancakes. Really, it's pancakes. So when people say it's selling like hotcakes, they need to stop saying that. It's selling like the U.S. dollar because, listen, the U.S. dollar is the best product ever invented by mankind. They make trillions of them, and you two guys and me will work 80 hours a week to get more, and other people will lie, cheat and still to get them. Then they'll make another trillion. And... Guys like me and you will work 80 hours a week to get more. And other people will lie, steal, and cheat to get them. It's insatiable demand. There has never been a product like this in the history of the world. And no matter how many they print, how many many they make, everyone wants to gobble them up. And so if you had a number one product like that, you would do everything in your power to protect it. You'd use the Navy, the SEC, the IRS, the President of the United States, confiscating gold. You would use everything in the world because as long as that works... Then everything works for America around the world as long as the U.S. dollar is working.
0: I but, love it. Man. This, this, oh, go ahead, Daniel. I was going to ask. So I, I think I think well, I want to ask this next question. <laughs> so a lot of people are concerned about the GDP debt growth that was growing in trillions every yeah. second, every few hours. Are you alluding to that? The more we get in debt, the actually stronger the dollar gets because now people actually owe us in dollars.
1: Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's a comp. That's a really complicated question. We don't have time to do that. that but but well, <laughs> I want you to think about one thing. So interest rates just a year or so ago were at 0%, almost zero, pretty close to zero. Yeah. And the Federal Reserve jacked them up faster than any time in history. Well, a few years ago, China has been knocking on the door of Saudi Arabia. Hey, Saudis, we're, your, we're a really big customer of you. We want to buy oil not using US dollars. We want to buy oil using the yuan. And Saudi Arabia has, so far that we believe, has stuck to the U.S. dollar, but they're getting tempted to sell to the yuan, the Chinese, right? And so the U.S. is like, well, we've got now an enemy, a competitor. The China is getting big, 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 and they're going to try to dethrone the U.S. dollar. So one way to combat that, we, we know that China has a lot, a lot, a lot of U.S. treasuries, and they've purchased them really low. really low yields. So, and we know they're going to start selling them. They've told everybody we're going to start selling large amounts of U S treasuries. So if we jack up the interest rate to five and a quarter, five and a half percent, every time China sells their U S treasuries, they get killed. I mean, they're losing lots of money. Okay. They get killed. So you ever heard the, you ever heard the uh, idiot waiter analogy. Let me, let me just share it with you. It's really quick. (laughs) There's this idiot waiter and we're, we all, we, let's say we all work at this restaurant and there's this one dude, he's an idiot waiter. He's, and he says, I'm really bad at math. That's why I'm waiting tables because every time that he, you know, someone pays him and he takes the, the cash to the cash register and brings it back. He always brings back the wrong change. And when they, when he's confronted on it, he says, well, I'm sorry. That's why I'm a waiter, not an accountant. I'm really bad at math. And we all know everyone, all the raiders, we all know he's really bad at math. But then the owner does something weird. The owner of the restaurant does an audit on his last 100 customers. And he finds out that of the last 100 customers, when the change came back, it was always in favor of the idiot waiter. But wait, 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 wait a minute. If he's really bad at math, then shouldn't 50% of the time the the change be in favor of the customer and 50% of the time the change be in favor of him? Yes, that's right. But if it's in favor of him all the time, He's not the idiot. We're all the idiots for believing him, right? Okay, so let's go back to the, let's go back to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is sitting there going, "No, oh, inflation's going up. It's transitory. Next month, inflation going. It's transitory. It's transitory. It's transitory. We're not going to raise interest rate. It's transitory." Well, I I, I give you an ip- hypothesis here. Maybe the Federal Reserve needed the inflation rate to go to nine percent. So that they could justify a five and a half percent interest rate to uh, uh, hurt China to protect their number one product. So if you need a nine, because if they said if if, if inflation was two percent and they said we're going to raise interest rates to nine percent, everyone have a fit. Everyone just have a fit. But if inflation's nine percent and they raise to five and a half percent, everyone's well. Okay. Okay. We can live with that. Maybe I'm just saying, maybe they wanted it five and a half percent so that they knew when China starts selling all these huge you know, treasuries, they get killed and that hurts their economy. I'm just saying, if, if my theory is true, that the number one job, the federal reserve is to protect and promote the US dollar, then maybe they said it's transitory. Inflation is transitory so that it would start running away. It would start going to 4%, 5%, 6%. Oh crap. It's 7%. We got to raise interest rates fast, and everyone was okay with it. Back to the idiot waiter analogy. Don't listen to what they say. Watch what they do. And that's kind of where I get done there. Oh, I got one more for you here. So China's economy is really, really doing bad right now, okay? And one of the reasons is because of U.S. pulling out a lot of companies. Over 300 companies in the last three or four years have left China. Japan companies have left China. Germany companies have left China. And also a lot of U.S. companies have left China. And guess where they've gone? They've gone to countries like South Korea, Thailand, and India. Countries that trade US, for U.S. dollars. And so what, mm. why, why hurt China? Right now, I'm sure what's going on in Saudi Arabia, and this is the U.S. so happy about this, the Saudi Arabia prince and his group are so glad that they didn't take the yuan three or four years ago for oil. They would have a bank account full of yuan, and they are so glad they didn't do that. It's a game. It's the, the What I'm trying to tell you about this, this, this currency war in this book, my book, please buy my book, Dollars, Gold, and Bitcoin. In this, what I'm trying to say is, it's the biggest game ever created by mankind. It's so large, you cannot... It, it's, it's bigger than World War II. It's it's incredibly this game of world currencies with the U.S. dollar. I got to give you one more. So there's two people we know of that tried to trade large amounts of oil not using U.S. dollar: Muammar Gaddafi of Libya and Saddam Hussein of of Iraq. Those are yes. Once they did that, within just a few years, they were both they both died. And I'm not saying the U.S. killed them. I'm saying the U.S. backed away from them and let other people go after them. Their bubble was protected once they started doing that. Now, there's a third guy that started to do this just a while back, Vladimir Putin. So Vladimir Putin, Russia invades Ukraine. Okay? Think of the dialogue here. Russia invades Ukraine, and our U.S. president says, we don't like Russia. We would like Russia to get out of Ukraine. And they do this for months. Get out of Ukraine, get out of Ukraine, get out of Ukraine. Then Putin says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stop selling our gas for U.S. dollars. We're going to start selling only in ruble and only in gold. That's all we're going to be able to do. Okay. The next week, or next two weeks, the U.S. president says, we need a regime change in Russia. Mm -hmm. That's way different than saying we want you to leave Ukraine. That's, That's hinting towards Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I don't know if you know this, but there are two pipelines that go from Russia under the Baltic sea and they go over to Germany and they supply natural gas to Germany and they go, it's, it's, you know, I don't know, 500 miles long. It's, it's, a huge two it's called Nord Stream one and Nord Stream two. And soon after Putin says, we're not going to accept us dollars anymore for our oil and gas. Someone with a deep water submarine went down and blew up those pipelines. They blew up Nord Stream 1 and they blew up Nord Stream 2. And And no, they they didn't blow up in one place. They blew them up here and they went up like, I don't know, 200 miles up the coast and blew them up again. Damn. I'm not saying who did it. I'm just saying you have a country that has the number one product of all time and their job is to protect it. And whatever has to happen to protect that, U.S. dollar, that number of product, they're going to do it. And so I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, when the, this this is a joke I'm about to tell, but I'm sure when the, our U.S. president talks to the Saudi prince, he's like, yeah, yeah. how's it going down there? Oil sales good? Yeah. Did you hear about the Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2? Yeah, crazy, right? I mean, they're just, they all know what's going on, (laughs) but, you know, it's, it's the U.S. dollar is just a, a, a mammoth on this planet. It's just, it's, it's amazing. And Bitcoin is in its crosshairs and the, the yuan is in its crosshairs. and Anything that threatens. Now listen, they don't want to kill Bitcoin because if they kill Bitcoin, then something will rise its head like Ethereum and take its place. Yeah. You don't want to kill. You just want to control. You don't want to kill your enemies. You just want to control them. If you kill them, another enemy comes up. But if you control your enemies, you know that dog, you know what that dog eats, and you know how to feed it. And so so that's the theory behind my book. And I use that theory to say, in my business dealings, and I've run funds for all these years, and I took me and my partner started in 2004 with my first fund. And by the time I retired at done 21, we were managing $28 billion asset center management from zero to $28 billion. And we had a bunch of partners over the time. And I, I brought in, we brought in brilliant business partners that took us farther than me and my original partner could ever think about going. But the point is I took, I, I studied the fed all these years. How did they get the number one product of all time? And I tried to emulate how they did it with how I'm going to run my business and make my business huge. And I believe I basically simulated their, Strategies, they're uh, bumping, they're pushing, they're whatever, and I was able to incorporate some of those into because look, if they're the best example of the number one product of all time, then you should learn from them mm-hmm. and how they work as a team. The IRS, the SEC, the the presidency, the uh, the Federal Reserve, how they work as a team. To do one goal, and what we did in our company is we became a team. Our all of our partners, I ended up with thirty-two partners, brilliant guys, brilliant guys. We all ended up as a team, working as a team, and we all brought in different skill sets and worked on one single thing. And we used strategies to our banks, to our competitors to our uh, customers. We were the same kind of strategies that the U S government has used to promote their number one product. And that's the impetus of my book. And the second half of the book is shows you how I built funds and how I implemented learning from the fed, how they were so successful of having number one product in the world uh, of mankind and, and use those strategies to, um, promote, uh, my business
2: dude incredible man like uh, the more I hear you talk the more I'm I'm excited to read the book
1: (laughs) (laughs) now it's on audible.com and I record it with my voice so if you want to listen to me for six and a half hours uh, on regular speed, then uh, you download it from audible.com too. So, yeah, dude,
2: I would, I'm actually going to download it right now as soon as we get off of this. <laughs> I'm <laughs> really excited. To thank hear you, about thank
1: it. you. Thank you. Thank
2: you. So that that's beautiful, man. And I think learning from people that that have these strategies, because just even as you're talking, I'm starting to apply things right to my business already. Like you said, like you don't want to kill your enemies, right? You want to, you want to kind of protect them, like take care of them. Like, Hey, so I know where you are.
1: Yeah. Right? yeah. So, right. there's, a, there's a really good story. Um, um, about Microsoft and Apple back in the day with Steve Jobs and Bill Gates.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Microsoft was being sued by the US government for uh, uh, monopoly and they were in court back there mm-hmm. and Apple's about to go out of business. And I don't, I, I believe that this is true, but I don't, I've never researched all the facts, but I believe Apple's about to go out of business and they need like $20 million and Steve Jobs calls um, uh, Bill Gates and says, you're going to loan me $20 million. He goes, why would I loan you $20 million? Cause if I go out of business, you have no competition and the U S government's going to win their antitrust and they're going to break you apart. Whoa. So Bill <laughs> Gates invested $20 million into Apple to keep him alive so that he wouldn't be sued. <laughs> and eventually, eventually that happened that Bill Gates was an owner or, or Microsoft was an owner of Apple. I mean, that's the whole point. That's the whole point.
0: <laughs> that so, is beautiful I, I, I like the aspect of keep, Keeping competition healthy Because I think it, it drives The customer never knows
1: Yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly The customer
0: never knows I think that's huge
1: I will share one thing with you People ask me I'm going to look at my notes here Just make sure I've got the dates right and stuff But people ask me all the time I, I started. I've started 14 businesses in my lifetime Uh, Three, I've made a lot of money on and three, three, I lost money on. And the ones in the middle, they all made, you know, they all did pretty good. Uh, You know, they weren't great. I couldn't, it was hard to scale them. And until I found the fund model, I couldn't scale the other 13 businesses. They got pretty good, pretty good size, but scaling, but a fund, a limited partnership, general partnership structure, it just scaled like you couldn't believe it was just, it was natural scaling. But I can go back and people ask me, where did I get my entrepreneurial spirit? And I, I remember when I was a late teenager, you know, when you're a teenager, you're almost graduating high school and you're worried about what am I going to do? What's my career path? How am I going to make money? You know, all these things as a, as a guy in the United States of America trying to figure out. And I, re- I seriously, I remember looking to the mirror. I was in the bathroom, I think, or maybe in my hallway. I looked into the mirror and I looked at myself and I thought about it a ton. And I said to myself, John, you're not afraid of being poor. And you're not afraid of being old. You're just afraid of being old and poor at the same time. Mm. Yeah. And I've repeated that self to I repeat that to myself for decades and decades and decades. And that kept me driving to make sure that I could run my own business and one day not be old and poor at the same time. And that was the motto that I kind of lived by all those years while I was, you know, had some businesses that failed, you know, and and like look. You're going to, you're going to, you know, I've told my kids, I said, if you do this, three things, it's an academic, it's one plus two equals three. It's academic. You stay healthy. Number number one, stay healthy. Number two, wake up every day and try. And number three, you will eventually succeed in the United States of America. And I have friends that are unhealthy and and are vastly successful. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm saying my way is academic one plus two equals three. And the reason I say this is because I believe the United States is the most fertile soil for entrepreneurs. I believe there is no better country on the planet for entrepreneurs than the United States. I believe the day you were born in the United States is the day you won the lottery. I believe the day you moved from a different country, you move from Nigeria or Thailand, you move here. That's the day you won the lottery because if you're an entrepreneur I don't, I don't know if for the best in reading and the best in mind, I don't know about all this stuff. But for entrepreneurs, I believe it's the best place and my formula works. Stay healthy. Number one, get up every day and try. Number two, and eventually, it might take 14 businesses, but eventually you will succeed. You might go to bed crying on your big pillow. <laughs> well, I can't meet payroll this Friday. I can't meet payroll this Friday. And you, but it doesn't matter. If you wake up the next day and try, you will eventually succeed. And it, that's America. It, you you have so many tools here to one business doesn't work well, you got to go to the next business. But it's it's just a great country with financing, the attitude, the people, the laws, they just make it a lot easier for, for entrepreneurs to succeed. And i just so happy that I was born into this country. But I have friends, you know, I've got people that move here from Nigeria or Thailand and in three years, they own like two laundromats and a restaurant. Three, four yeah. years, they don't even speak the language. Beautiful. How, how, Beautiful. Does that, how does that happen? How does that happen? Because the country is a fertile place for entrepreneurs.
2: Dude, I'm already like a super optimistic person. Right? I just always see the, the, the bright side of things, but this conversation has made me feel like 20% like more optimistic, right? Because you you, you see all this doom and gloom all over the, the, the media, social media yeah. everywhere, saying that the, the Federal Reserve is the big bad guy that's gonna that's trying to shut, shut the United States down. But yeah. uh, it, it sounds like, yeah, based on everything that we've, we've talked about in this conversation, like, man, we, we, we do have that protective shield around this
1: big yeah, time. yeah. Yeah. So in 1999, I watched their report as uh, a new newscast and they were, these people were on their newscaster was vilifying hedge fund managers saying they make a lot of money and they pay really low in taxes. And I watched this thing of this reporter vilifying, making this person evil and I thought, wait, 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 wait. I want to be that person. I want to figure out how to make a lot of money, and pay less tax. I want to figure that out. This is 1999, right? 1999. And so for the next five years, it took me five years to launch my first fund at 40 years old when I was 40 in, in, in 2004. All right. So five years, I got my series seven license, stockbroker's license. I became the manager of a, of a broker dealer. I then got, uh, I wanted to learn how mortgages work. So I started selling mortgages, got my mortgage license. I then got my series 65 investment advisors license. I read PPMs, LPAs, but those are private placement memorandums of a bunch of funds, limited partnership agreements, LPAs of funds, subscription documents over and over and over. And I taught myself how to launch a fund. And my first fund we launched with one other, one other in 2004, we were doing short-term loans on real estate. And then we added a few more partners and launched a second in 2007. And it was called Bridge Loan Capital Fund 1 in 2004 and Bridge Loan Capital Fund 2 in 2007. And then 2008 hit us with the recession. And I'm so grateful that it came. Because if the recession would have never come, I would have still been lending, doing loans. I'd been making good money. But what it forced me is to stop lending on real estate And in 2008, late 2008, we launched our third fund. We started buying real estate from banks and that's, and that team and that we added some more partners, that team went from here to $28 billion asset management by 2021. So, and and I had competitors in 2007, just drop out of the business. They were bigger than me. They were bigger than me and my real original partners there they lent more money they did and they dropped out of the business went and done something else and we just buckled down and twisted it and said wake up every day stay healthy wake up every day and try we went from a fund our third fund of lending on real estate to going to banks and buying REO from real estate uh, from banks and that just took us to new heights that we could have never imagined managing I remember when we hit our first billion I was like what Oh, Anthony, I, I know, I know. Anthony, knows this. Anthony, let me ask you a question. This is a good one. If I gave you a dollar a second, one, two, three, four, and I never slept, never went to the bathroom, how long would it take me to give you one billion dollars? in other words, how long is a billion seconds? Here's a multiple choice: thirty-one hours, thirty-one days, thirty-one months, or thirty-one years.
2: A billion seconds.
1: 31 days? A billion seconds. Just start counting. To one, two, just start counting to a billion. Yeah. <laughs> it's 31.7 years. Whoa. 31.7 years is one billion dollars. So when we talk about, and I get on stage when I talk about billions, I, I I give this example because people misuse the word billion all the time. They'll go, John, I was just outside. I saw this enormous flock of birds. There must have been a billion of them. And I go, No, there wasn't. <laughs> you know why I know? I've done the math. We have no concept. A, a billion birds <laughs> is 31.7 years of seconds. It's 31 years, it's almost 32 years of seconds. They miss you. So when we talk about the Federal Reserve in billions, and we talk about Bitcoin in billions, and we talk about managing $28 billion as asset our management, it's a huge number. So when we hit our first billion, I was just, I, I sat down and did the math, and I couldn't believe it. 31, 32, almost 32 years of seconds. Is a billion dollars, and so you know the Bitcoin, the dollars, the gold, everything on this planet that that the U.S. has at, at its fingertips uh, to you know maneuver and protect its number one product. It, it's just amazing what they what the what the government has done to do that.
2: Man, incredible story, man. So, I got a bunch of, I mean, I, I could, like I said, I could have this conversation forever. So, we're just starting to get into the funds. We're almost going to launch our fund. Why was the fund the catalyst for growth? You said that when you, when, once you got into that portion of it, things just started to grow exponentially. Yeah. What and why? Can, can we kind of share that with the viewers and our, and of, of course, us?
1: Okay. First, first thing I learned in two, 1999, and I was like flabbergasted by this. Okay. You, you know who Steve Jobs is of Apple? Mm-hmm. And you, do you know who Steve Schwartzman is? Okay. No. Black, black. Oh, Blackstone, Blackrock, Blackrock, Blackstone, Blackstone. So Steve Schwartzman and Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs took his company public using an ink, an incorporation. And every year in an ink, what happens is the shareholders, the people who are the shareholders, who have the money, they get together and they have a shareholder vote. And they vote who runs the company. And eventually Steve Jobs got voted out of his own company that he founded. In a general partnership, limited partnership structure, the limited partnership is an entity over here and investors put all their money into limited partnership. The general partner is a separate entity, which you guys are going to do as you're starting your own fund, and you're the general partner. The limited partners never get together and vote who the general partner is Mm -hmm. unless you commit fraud. If you and I'm not going to commit fraud, so I thought, wait, wait, if I'm the general partner and this thing goes really, 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 really big. They can never vote me out. The One billionaire can never say, you know what, John, we appreciate what you've done. We're going to vote you out. But the billionaire wants to have his son run the company. Mm-hmm. That's never going to happen. And that's what Steve Schwartzman did. Steve Schwartzman took his company with the same structure, general partner, limited partner structure, took them public, and they're now public. And they, unless he commits fraud, I don't think they can ever vote him out. So that's the number one, not should say number one, that's the first thing I learned about general partnership, limited partnership. Funds is that if it it ever gets really, really big, you can't vote me out because I started the thing and you just can't vote me out because you're greedy. So that's the first thing in in funds. The second thing in funds, why can they scale? All right. So let's just say you're running your, you have your, 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 there's two entities, a general partner, limited partnership. There's two entities. The general partnership is an LLC. The limited partnership is an LP, a limited partnership. And that's where all the investors called limited partners, put their money into. Okay. And that limited partnership, let's say it's a publisher, it sells books. Okay. You've raised a bunch of money and people put money in and now you're publishing books and that's what that that does. And the general partner is here. And once they get up and running and you have employees doing all that, right? The general partner can start a second fund and it starts a second fund that they don't uh, publish books. There's a paper, they're, they're now a paper company and they have trees in this forest and they make all this paper and you raise money in this second fund up here. Let's say second fund up here and it's called the paper fund and people invest in the paper fund to, the, because these guys know how to make money making paper, but the general partner is the same or it could be two different general partners owned by you. The difference is you can have multiple, 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 multiple funds and basically the same kind of general partnership in the middle. And it just there, it's compartmentalized, and therefore it can scale. So in real estate, you could have a fund that does multifamily, and get that up and running with people who know how to run multifamily. Then you can have another fund that does single-family homes, and you can have partners that only know how to do single-family homes. They don't know how to do multifamily. Mm-hmm. And you can have another fund that just does raw land, and they these guys know how to do raw land. And so we figured out, or I. We figured out, my, my, me and my partners, that there are people, think about this. I know how to start companies. I started, and but there are other people that went to college and they never started a company in their life and they went to work for a big bank. And this guy or this lady has been underwriting bank loans for 17 story apartment complex in New York for 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. So, this lady or sure. this guy has a lot of gray hair. They've been through a lot. They know, and they, you know, what they, you know, what they, they drive to work every day to think about, they think about one day, I'm going to start my own investment fund, but they don't know how to start it. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to get it going because they've been in corporate for so long and schooling for so long. I know how to start companies. Now, if I get that lady or guy to come work in on my fund that just does, lending or apartment buying apartments, they're going to be an owner. And this is my pitch to him. Listen, I don't want you to be the person when you're 70 years old, retired, and you always thought I should have tried one time to be an entrepreneur. This is that moment. You're going to leave your job. You're going to come work for the fund. You're going to be an owner of the fund the first day, or we're going to give you a vesting schedule. You're going to make less money. You're gonna make less money, I promise you. You're not gonna make as much money on salary wise. But if it works, you're gonna make way more money than you ever would at your job at the bank. All right. I know these poor people are driving to work every day. I just had to find them. I know there's a guy that went to an Ivy League school, he works in Wall Street, been there 15 years, he's got gray hair. He's a great capital raiser. I'm a good capital raiser, I'm not a great capital raiser. I'm not the be- I wanted the best capital raisers, right? And I found, you know, there's these same people. They drive to work every day. One day I'm going to start my own hedge fund. Mm-hmm. And those people actually, when we brought them in and they became partners, they can run the company, grow the company faster than I could ever grow it. they learned so much stuff in school and college. Right? But starting it, getting it off and getting it to a certain point takes an entrepreneur. And a fund can – can has an, it, it's enticing to people who are in corporate America – that have always dreamed one time in their life about being a fund manager. And you say to them, listen, even if it fails, at least when you're 70 and you're retired, you can say, I went for it. I took the shot, but you don't want to be the person when you're 70 that I sitting there with your grandkids going, dang it. I never took the shot. And this is the sales pitch that, you know, you give to people when you find them, you find the person with the gray hair, they're experts at what they do. Mm
0: -hmm. And you have a
1: fund that only single family homes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, that person has been working in family homes for decades. They just never worked for themselves. And you get you get a four or five of these people, and you bring them in, and they're the investment committee of that fund. Wow. And that's how it scales. And then you do a second, third fund. That's how it scales. And and and, and like I said, my first 13 businesses, I, I got them to a good size, but I couldn't get them to scale. And a fund model, it just kept scaling. That's That's what happened.
2: That's beautiful. Okay. So you're not trying to get into something that you don't know too much about you as the entrepreneur sets the fund up, you set the framework, and then you grab other people that are already in that field. They're experts in their field, and then you lay the groundwork for them. And and then they build the, they build the mansion.
1: Yeah. There's three basic circles. Okay. Think about a circle, a circle, one circle, two circles, three circles, Mm -hmm. this circle are people who know how to raise capital, this circle are people in the middle that know how to file the SEC to do accounting. They know how to talk to investors. They know how to issue really good quarterly reports. The third circle is your investment professional. So if you're going to do a single family home fund, you would need someone in this circle that doesn't like accounting, doesn't like raising money. They just love finding, purchasing, and making uh, single-family rentals or single-family homes, you know, flipping them, whatever. They're expert investor here. And
0: mm-hmm. then you find
1: people over here that are experts in accounting and taxes and all this stuff, SEC, compliance. And then you find someone who just loves raising capital. The person who loves raising capital is not really ever an expert in actually finding large apartment buildings to buy. That's not the same personality. Now, in yeah. the beginning, when I started, I did all three. I raised capital. Then I drove and I uh, to sit another city and I underwrote a you know a forty acre uh, building uh, pads and we and then I came back and I did quarterly reports and I did the tax returns and I did it all. Me, me and the first partner, we did it all. You have to yeah. do it when you first one. But as you grow, you're able to get better and better experts. And as you grow and you get better and better experts, when you put a, together a team of a bunch of experts that are really great in their field the money is easier to raise. Even though capital raising is always hard, it's easier to raise when you have a team that's really jiving, really working together, and they are all got great resumes, and they all know what they're doing in their particular circles. And that's kind of how you get get to a certain economy of scale, and it just snowballs from there, and it just gets bigger and bigger, and it scales.
2: And that is beautiful. So I feel like that's Daniel and myself right now. We are the professional purchasers, right? And that's what we're good at. I think we're getting better, Um, you know, getting on with, with fun lunch that, you know, that there's the infrastructure. And then we do have one person right now that's raising a significant amount of capital for us. So I I feel like we got the three pillars right now.
1: Yeah. 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 So just think about, keep, keep thinking about those three circles and every day, every Monday, when you have your, you and your partner meetings, you're always, you know, concentrating on filling out those three circles. If you were a baseball team and you needed people who could hit, people who can catch and people who can pitch, right? Mm-hmm. Every Monday morning you're trying to get the best pitchers to join your team, the best hitters to join your team, the best, you know, so you're just, you know, you're, every morning you're trying to build you're trying to build your team as best possible and you realize maybe you're a really good pitcher but you're not a great pitcher and to win championships you need a great pitcher. So you're, you're still pitching until you can find and attract a really great pitcher. And so when that really great pitcher comes into your baseball team, then you move to center field. And then when you find a guy in center field that joins your team that can run like a 4-3-40, then you go to second base. That's, that's kind of the mantra of trying to build a team that is experts in all they do.
2: Man, powerful, dude. This is very powerful. Like I said, this has been a very, very great conversation for me personally. Like I said, I felt like a lot of this stuff is applicable and it sounds like we're on the right path, man. So excellent, excellent conversation. I was going to ask, why did the exponential growth come from being the lender, right? And I can understand those are smaller margins, but now going after REOs, why was that so significant? Are you are you guys just buying stuff for like 10, 20 cents on the dollar? Is it is it high volume or what was the main catalyst there?
1: Yeah, we eventually went back into lending after the markets came back. But we had to change because in 2007, if you lent somebody some money on a property, they couldn't get a loan from the bank because the bank wasn't doing any loans.
2: So there was so no way it to... It, like, let's,
1: let's say you did a four-month loan, a short-term loan. There's no way for me to get out. I couldn't get... I had to foreclose. Oh, oh, because yeah. the, the borrower would be, always say, well, I'm going to then build this property up and then get a loan from the bank and then pay you out. And I'd say great. And but if the banks, none of the banks are giving loans, then I couldn't do a short-term loan and get an exit. I was going to be a short-term loan and I was going to become an owner anyway, because I had to foreclose. So rather than go through the whole foreclosure process and have why don't you just start buying the property at discount from banks who are foreclosing after the bank forecloses? So our third fund was, you know, purchasing property rather than lending. And in reality, listen, like I told you, I think I said before, I'm so glad the recession happened. This is, I'll, this is a true story right here. We had, <laughs> had a guy, friend of mine calls me, John, John, how you doing? is 2007, eight-ish, right? Eight, eight, really, At the end, of, end of eight. And he says, how you doing? I go, I'm doing good. What, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm calling because I know real estate's really bad right now. And I know you're into real estate. And I want, wondered how you and your family are doing. And I just felt sorry for you. I said, you, are you, are have you lost your mind? The best time in 80 years to be in real estate is 2008, nine, 10, and 11. There is no better time in 80. Years. Have you, are you not thinking straight? And so he was like on the phone like, oh my gosh, I, I, I called to say, I'm sorry for you. And eventually that guy and a few other guys that called me, I made them my investors. I kept talking to them about you guys got to put more money in now because you can buy stuff so cheap in 2009, 10. And those guys that called me to feel sorry for me became some of my investors. So my point is if you wake, if you stay healthy, wake up every day and try, you know, eventually you have to take, look at all, um, adverse, something that's going wrong. There's an opportunity there somewhere, because if you're hurting, everyone else is hurting too. And therefore, but the hurting usually can't last forever. It's got to change. And if you can see it, so we changed from lending to purchasing. And that's, you know, that's the story. So
2: Beautiful, man. I guess so all the moons in line, just right at Did the I right. Oh, okay. yeah, right. Uh, yeah. I'm still here. I don't know. Yeah. Daniel. yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and so listen, since I've got to tell you something, since 1971, mm-hmm. since 1971, when it, we went off the gold standard, uh you give it a few years but then every 10 years the world kind of changes so 1978 we had the, the 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 financial crash in 1978 fall of 1978 and in 1979 no I'm sorry wrong 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 i got the wrong dates 1971 we go off the gold standard 1987 we have a crash in the stock market one year later, the Soviet Union falls. and guess what me and my partner did We, we had, had three, two partners. <laughs> the the kids in Eastern Bloc Europe they would watch they, they couldn't buy goods on the western on the west from the West. They couldn't get them. it was it was a you know cold War. Mm-hmm. but they could watch Hollywood shows and they could watch you know, like Jay Leno and the Tonight Show and they'd watch these Hollywood stars where, faded Levi 501 jeans made by Mr. Levi Strauss in San Francisco. And that was the fashion item they wanted. But so when the wall fell down in, in 89, everyone wanted Made in USA products. So we in the Western United States had been wearing, I, I grew up with them. We wore them as work jeans, 501s, but mm-hmm. we found out that if you went to the Eastern block, you could sell these for a hundred dollars a pair. The Levi Strauss company couldn't move into the Eastern Bloc countries fast enough. And so we started purchasing Levi's, used Levi's from all over the country in the Western United States, the 13 Western states. And eventually my two business partners moved to Southern Germany and I would get supply over here, buying from thrift stores, the public, everybody. And we would ship, I would sew them, re dye them, fix them up. Put bandanas behind the big holes in the knees, whatever. Ship them over to Germany, and my two partners would sell them all through, you know, Prague and places like that. And we were soup to nuts. We were buying from the public over here, and we were selling to the public over there. We did that for nine years. Whoa! That's all I did for nine years. I tried to find more Levi five hundred one jeans and ship them, sew them, wash them, sh- get them out to my partners in, in Europe, and they. Sold them. It was a nine-year run. That was 1989. Now, ten years later, 1999, the dot-com bubble, you know, crashed. Right, mm-hmm. and the dot-com bubble, well, bubble, it went up and up and up, and and then it, and the internet was coming, and then 2000 it crashed. I missed that one. I nailed the one in '89 uh, for exports. I nailed it. We did such a great job. It was such a huge business. I missed the 2000 bubble but in 2009 me and my partners nailed it the great recession and then in 2019 20 we had the we had the uh you know the covid and we nailed it again with opportunity zone funds and we raised about 5 billion dollars you know, in opportunity zone funds because it was it was financially put there so about every 10 years the world goes boom and those are the big huge places where a lot of people make a lot of money when it goes boom, when it all goes, you know, smooth, you can make some money, but when it goes boom, if you think about it, right, if you really think it through and you have a fund that can raise money from investors, uh, you can take, you can take advantage of it. Yeah. So
2: incredible, man. So, uh, real quick, I know we're getting close to that hour, right what over what the hour. Can you do a prediction? Like, what do you think the next big boom is going to be?
1: The next big boom. <laughs> well, I know there's a big change coming. It's called, it's called the U S digital dollar. Definitely. And I don't know when it's going to come around. I just know it's going to come. They're going to keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And it might be May, 2033, the 100 year anniversary of the gold confiscation. And it may be made, you know, that 100 year anniversary in 2033. And they might say for the good of the country, we can no longer allow Bitcoin or old coins or gold or silver. We all have to only use the U S digital dollar for the, the goodness of the country to keep America on top. And we might, and, and that might be another, you know, they will, they, like I said, they will, they will transition. They will, uh, uh, transition and evolve the U S dollar in any way they possibly can to keep it the number one on top of the world, even to the point where confiscating gold, or confiscating, you know, anything is, uh, is, is in their, in their ability to do.
2: Wow. Yeah. I, I can definitely see that, man. Hey, uh, Hey John, uh, wrapping up now, uh, we wanted to, we always ask, what is one quote that you resonate with? That's either yours or someone else's.
1: Okay. One thing I, I it says, oops, connection lost reconnecting. Okay.
0: You're I good. can still hear you fine.
1: Do you got that? Do you have that on yeah, your, it's just you. Okay. We're good. Okay. So, you're asking me a book? book books I like? Um, uh, no. a quote. A, a quote that's yours. One of my favorite else. books. A quote. Yeah. One of my favorite books. <laughs> oh, quotes. You say quotes? Yeah. yeah. And, and, oh, I thought you said I,
0: books. Sorry. <laughs> and I'd like to know the book. And I'd like to know the book, too. You're holding it
1: already. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll tell you the book. One of the books I love, and I just love the way the guy put, went after it, it's called uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. And even though I don't agree with everything he says in this book, it's it's quite a quite – a, um, trying to figure out why everything in the world happens. Okay. Why did Columbus discover America and the Chinese didn't do it? Why can we not – why did we domesticate horses and didn't domesticate zebras? I mean, he just – he goes off. There's one – in the back of the chapter, one of the chapters at the very end of the book, he says, you know, when you're on, on your typewriter or, or your computer, where, the, where all the keys are, where the, where the letter K is and where the letter J is? Mm-hmm. He says, listen, when they first invented the typewriter in the early uh, 1900s, they had a different configuration. They kept testing different configurations, and they found one that was really fast. People could just really, really type really fast on, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened, though, the typewriters back then used to have a ribbon. And the ribbon kept getting jammed. So they switched the configuration to a slower configuration that's slower to type on. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then about four to five years later, they fixed the ribbon jamming and they went back and tried to change the configuration where the A, where the B, where the C is to the faster Mm one. And everyone had already learned the slower one. And you and me today use this configuration because of that. <laughs> is that a wild story? That's cool. Man. We are purposely slowing down. We're purposely slower typing today because in 19 let's, I don't know, 06 or something, they couldn't fix the ribbon and they fixed it five years later. That's why we have the configuration we do on our computers. And that is one of the in the one of the last chapters of this book. Guns, Germs, and Steel. So that's one of the books I really, really enjoy.
2: So, that's so cool, I bet there's a lot of cool stories like that, of things that we do today that just have a funny explanation like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one quote. It's in my book. It's an old African proverb, and it says this. And this is perfect because I end the book with this in, my, in the last couple of pages of my book because I'm talking about funds and how great funds are when you get a group of people together. And I can't. I don't think I quote it perfectly, but it basically says this: If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a group. That's my quote.
2: I love that quote, man. I have a a multi-level marketing background, so I always think in terms of teams and helping other people and growing together. So that 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 quote resonates with me big time.
1: Yeah. So,
0: where can people right, man, find I, people I think work? we're over our time here, dude. What a
2: blessing. Uh, I hope we can have part 2 of this conversation because I feel like I have a, a lot more questions that I would ask. Yeah. But yeah, we don't want to take up too too much of your time. I super appreciate you getting on here with us. It means a lot. And uh, I feel like I've learned a ton today, man. Stuff that's very very applicable to you. I hope the audience did too. Wow,
0: thank you. Where,
1: thank you. Yeah.
0: Where can people find your book? All right, John. We'll see you next time. Yeah, the man. book
1: the book is on audible.com or amazon.com. Can you give us a title John again? John S. Pennington Jr. Yeah. Dollars, golden Bitcoin by John S. Pennington Jr. Amazon or audible.com. And on audible, it. again, audible, it's my voice the entire six and a half hours at regular speed. So if you want to listen to my voice for six and a half hours, <laughs> you can go to audible. So thank you. But thanks guys. <laughs> thanks guys for hosting me. Really appreciate it. It's been a great discussion. Really, really loved it.
2: Dude, this was awesome. I'm going to download the book right now and I'm going to start listening to it right now. I seriously am.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Awesome, John. Thanks for hanging out, man. I'll see you soon. Thank you.
1: Okay. See you. Bye. Thanks for tuning
0: in. Go like, share, subscribe. We'll see you in the next episode, guys. Thank you.